Now please turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll uh, be referencing this uh, text in a few moments' time, but uh, just read from the verse number 27. Matthew 5, reading together from the verse number 27. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Amen. Again, we look to God to bless his word uh, to our hearts. Uh, just to recap where we were two weeks ago, oh, we were realizing that the definition of marriage that I've been offering from Malachi chapter 2 must be understood in the light of God's truth in the whole regarding marriage. Uh, that you shouldn't see marriage as a covenant of companionship and thereby in some way presume that that could also be said of those in a same-sex union, as they may call it. Companionship and covenant is understood in light of God's revealed truth, namely that marriage is a relationship, an exclusive relationship, between one man and one woman for life. That is God's revealed purpose. And yet we live in a day, of course, where this is being contested, and is opposed by many. Now, when I was working through this series on ethics beginning last year, I did not believe that we'd be looking at this subject at such an important time. Again, of course, most of you are aware that in this week past Congress passed what is known as the Respect for Marriage Act. And I want to remind you, and again, this was not my intent in this, per- in this particular study, but I think it's important to make mention of it again today. You think of the progress of legislation in this regard in this nation over the last, uh, I suppose, less than 20 years. It is, a, it is an interesting progress. Back in 1996, uh, I suppose more than 20 years ago now, in 1996, there was the Defense of Marriage Act passed, known as DOMA. And again, that was passed by Congress out of a concern that states would be forced to recognize same-sex marriage that was performed in liberal states. The very opposite of what's been passed now. There was a concern that if a liberal state passed a a same-sex marriage act, that other states would be forced to recognize that. In a similar fashion that if you drive your car in Maryland, they will recognize your driver's license in Pennsylvania. And so the concern was, well, if they pass same-sex marriage in, in Pennsylvania or in California, probably more likely California, they pass it there, well, what's that going to mean for other states? And so they, they passed DOMA back in 1996. Now, some years later, 2013, that was struck down by the Supreme Court, leading on then to what's known as the Burgerfeld decision in 2015, whereby states again where uh, there was a recognition, according to the Supreme Court, there was a fundamental right for couples to marry in same-sex unions across the nation. Of course, that tragic decision uh, then itself uh, led the way for the Respect for Marriage Act passed in recent recent weeks. 
And again, the purpose of that, the very opposite of Doma, uh, namely that states should be forced to recognize same-sex marriage as it is called. Now, of course, there are many responses to this and many causes for concern. Let me just highlight four uh, that I think we should keep in mind regarding the concern uh, in light of this legislation. It is, in essence, society saying, remember, we have representative governments, and it is, in essence, the society saying, generally, we don't agree with God. And wherever you go anywhere else in this, you've got to start there. It is a public declaration of the legislator that they, as a representative body, believe that their representatives, or those whom they represent, do not agree with God on the definition of marriage. If they didn't think that, they wouldn't vote for it. And so we're showing again this, this very act is again a, a demonstration of the rebellion of our society against God. And that, of course, goes so far beyond marriage. We see it in different ways. But marriage is the building block of God's ordering for society. When society turns against marriage, that building block, I guarantee you, society will crumble. And we should expect that. I don't believe I'm a pessimist. I believe in the mighty power of God's grace, able to intervene. But as long as society seeks to destroy marriage, it is on a pathway towards absolute destruction. And anything less is not according to the Word of God. God says this is how society should be built up. If we disagree with God in that regard, we should expect to see things crumbling around us. So what do we do? Well, we pray. We seek for God's grace to have mercy in such times, and we seek to proclaim the Word of God in days of such confusion. We say, well, actually, this is what God says. Now, I think, secondly, we should recognize that the state has no right to define marriage. It's also important. Absolutely no right to define marriage. And I would say that in the UK as much as I would say it here in the US. This is not a, a matter of a particular local government issue or a, a national government issue. It is a simple fact that marriage is pre-political. It's ordained of God, defined by God, and the state does not define marriage. Now, what's happened, of course, in our, in our generations is the state has recognized marriage and given some benefits and privileges to those who are married. Again, and that itself is a recognition, initially, the state understood the benefits of marriage for children, for society, and therefore those who were married, they were given certain benefits. There was a privilege given to those who were married, and that, again, has brought others, well, we want those same things, even though they have no right to those same privileges, because marriage is pre-political, and the state has no right to define or redefine. Either way, it doesn't have the right to say this is what marriage is. It's already decided. That's all dealt with already. It's also worth noting that what is happening in this situation is it is minimizing marriage, really saying marriage is simply an emotional bond between two individuals. Of course, I fear that in the future it may be more than two individuals involved in these things. That may well be what happens next. But for now, let's accept for now, they are seeing that marriage is an emotional bond between two individuals. And therefore, whether those are two men or two women or a man and a woman, if they have that emotional bond, they should be given the right to marry. But of course, marriage is much more than that. Back in the traditional uh, Church of England book or the, the Book of Common Prayer, you go back to those original wordings of the marriage ceremonies, there was a recognition that marriage had a procreative function. And it was for the good of society and for the family. 
And again, homosexual marriage cannot procreate. No matter how they try to manipulate science in that regard, they cannot procreate. And so marriage is much more than an emotional bond in the ways of God. I just make one comment that's important. There may well be genuine threats to religious freedoms going forward. Again, some of that will need to be tested. Um, we'll see what happens in that regard. I don't want to be a, a doom monger in that aspect. We'll see what happens. But I have very little confidence that what's been passed will secure our religious freedoms when things are pushed upon us. But we'll see. We'll see what happens in that regard. But the first one, I think, is the most important one. It's a society saying we don't agree with God. And in that regard, we've got to be very clear what God says on this issue. And that's why we're doing these studies on ethics at this time. There are young people that all of us are reminded of what God says regarding our conduct in a fallen world that is marked by such confusion at this time. And what concerns me is that in many supposed Christian circles, there is a lessening of the strength of feeling in this regard. There's a diluting of the rhetoric being used against these things. Well, maybe if I can borrow, again, I couldn't believe it. I said this two weeks ago, and, and the President Biden said the same thing. Well, love is love. Love without any governance, love without any ethical standards, well, that just leads to abuse and chaos. You know, love is governed by the Word of God. There are regulations for love. Love and keeping the commandments are combined in the Word of the Lord. But there are some, again, in the Christian spheres, liberal churches, and sadly in some not-so-liberal churches, that are suggesting, well, maybe this is not such a big deal. Let people do what they want to do in their own privacy. Well, of course, I've said already, it is a declaration of opposition to the will of God, and that's enough for me. But those, well, love is love. We shouldn't judge. Again, I went on to say, look at this matter. It's not your business. I'm not going back over all of the arguments against these things. But these are things that are being foisted upon the church. You're saying to churches, folks, you need to understand this. Don't, don't be so hard against these matters. These are the things that you should accept. It's none of your business, basically. And, of course, the impact on society is such that it is very much the business of people as to what government passes regarding these matters. We mentioned this point, and it's just Old Testament teaching. We'll come back to that uh, later on this morning. And then some suggesting it's my civil rights. Again, I mentioned back in the 1990s, authors of a book uh, called In After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays. In the 90s, these authors sought to argue that this LGBT movement would only be promoted when the argument shifted from moral acceptance to civil rights. So they made it a matter of civil rights rather than moral acceptance. And so you see that going through the courts then in the future years. The other one was people can't help how they feel. And here we parked it here uh, last time. And I said we come back to that today. Because with this one, there is some truth in this. And so people will come to you and they'll say, well, you, you can't oppose. You can't oppose same-sex marriage or same-sex attraction. Because people really just, they can't help how they feel. But I would suggest that's not positive. It's a negative affirmation, but there is some truth in it. Because the issue, of course, is that sin arises out of a sin nature. That sin doesn't just appear. It is something that comes from within us. You think of the mind of the depraved man. The mind does not understand the law. The will 
doesn't choose the good, and the heart will not love that which is pleasing to God. And so in the fullness of humanity, man is broken by the fall, depraved in understanding, in volition, in choice, in affections, in the heart. All of these things are broken, whereby, yes, those who love sin and choose sin and believe sin to be good, they are simply showing the depraved situation of their hearts. You see, sexual sin in every form finds itself under the seventh commandment. I'm not going to prove this for for now, but just remind you uh, that the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's law. They are not an exhaustive declaration of every application of the law of God. And so you have, for example, you have the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then you've got Leviticus chapter 18 with various ways in which that particular command is applied in different situations. Okay, so does not mean that those sins in Leviticus don't find themselves under the moral law of God. They do. But they find themselves sitting under, if you like, the umbrella of the seventh commandment. And the same can be said for all the ten commandments. And the applications are broad. And so every sin is included in that regard. But here, when you come to uh, Matthew chapter 5, you will see the Lord saying, as he quotes the seventh commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery, that he recognized that in society at that time, the Pharisees had minimized the seventh commandment to be the simple external violation of God's law in that regard. But the Lord says, no, it's a matter of the heart. Okay, so you can't help how you feel. Well, that's a problem with your heart. And so verse 27 says, Whoever looks on a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her already in his heart. So you've got to look back and you've got to think to yourself, well, if sin originates in the heart, well, what does the Bible say regarding the matter of homosexual union? What does the Bible say in that regard? Well, when you consider the Bible as a whole, there's only one conclusion. Any fair interpretive scripture comes to the conclusion that sexual intimacy is only to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, nowhere else. Not heterosexual union outside of marriage, and not homosexual union in any fashion. The Word of God is clear. It is through marriage that sexual union is to be enjoyed. Intimacy only taking place between a man and a woman lawfully joined in that regard. You see, turn back, please, to Genesis chapter 19. Again, I want just to remind you here, I've said to you, this is against the will of God, but I haven't taken time to show that. So let's do that now. Genesis chapter 19. We have, of course, the details of Sodom and the angels going to Sodom and Lot receiving them into his home. And those in the, again, the, the, the same-sex marriage uh, uh, lobby, they, they hate this portion of Scripture. They hate the term sodomy. But it was a term in English language that was drawn from this particular situation. And it is an appropriate term to describe the sin. You have here in verse number 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. 
Some people have sought to re-explain the sins of Sodom and saying, well, they had all manner of sins. They were inhospitable. They were guilty of pride and all these other things, other matters of iniquity. But it clearly states in verse number four that the purpose of these men was that they would know the men received into Lot's house. I know, of course, is that English euphemism that is used for union in an authorized version. And if you think that's not what it means, you go back to verse or you go to number verse number eight. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. I'm not going to draw the parallels. You see it very clearly. It is clearly a reference to sexual union. And you think back to even Genesis chapter 4, uh, where Adam and Eve, Adam knows his wife. The sin is condemned by God. Condemned by God in his judgment upon Sodom. And also in the language, turn across to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. where you have Peter's inspired interpretation of the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow. Just noting in passing, the word condemnation that's used generally in the New Testament is a word that has a legal bearing. It's opposite to justification. So in justification, there is the declaration of righteousness. In condemnation, there is God's legal declaration of the iniquity against the law. So we're discussing this matter. Is sodomy against God's law? Here's a proof text that God condemned sodomy as against the law of God because condemnation has that as its very core idea. Iniquity against a revealed law, a revealed standard, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. Okay, so you get the point here? They are condemned. That means violation of God's law. They're described as living ungodly. And then verse number 7, And delivered just lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So you've got a multiplication of terms here. Unlawful, filthy, ungodly, all of which brings God's condemnation, declaring them to be wicked and against the purposes of God. And of course, we know that. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, calls all homosexual activity an abomination against the pleasing of God. The New Testament, of course, is equally clear. Turn back to Romans chapter 1. These are verses that are well known, but I think just for the benefit of this uh, message that, again, is being recorded and for its, uh, to help us comprehend, uh, to help it be more, uh, including all of the Bible's revelation of this, and you've got Romans chapter 1. It's not just an Old Testament sin. Again, as God abandoned society, society exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That as society turns to idolatry, what happens? Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. 
And again, if you listen to some of the debates and the language regarding homosexuality, one of the things that they absolutely hate is when it's referred to as being not natural. And they just despise that again because they have this idea that people can't help how they feel. And so they say, well, what I'm doing is natural to me. So my general response is, yes, it's natural to your depraved heart, but it's against nature as in God's, against God's creative purpose. That's the idea here. And so the natural here is it's against what God intended in creation. As he makes man male and female. And so you've got the clear reference there that in Romans chapter 1, that these practices are a sense, a revelation of God taking his hand off society. And a very sobering thought. And then one other portion, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We were told the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And you have a list of those who are those who are described as unrighteous, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves of mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, and these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, of course, we understand that what's described here is those who are habitual in their practice of these sins, unrepentant in their practice, because verse 11 makes it clear that these are not unpardonable sins. Those who are guilty of all of these sins, they can be washed, they can be sanctified, they can be justified through the name of Christ, the power of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God that can change their hearts, and the blood of Christ that can cleanse them from all of their sins. But... Verse 11 does not mean that the sins of verse 9 and 10 aren't actually sins. I don't believe for a second the suggestion here is that those in verse number 11 are continuing in the sins of verse 9 and 10. That's against the whole tenor of Scripture. It's not the matter these people continue these sins, but because they're washed, rather it says, but such were some of you. Past tense. They've left these sinful practices because they've come to no cleansing in Christ. And so they're no longer described in this fashion. They used to be this, but now they're not any longer. They're those who've been born again of the Spirit of God. And so I think that's, I trust, a very quick summary of what the Bible teaches regarding the matter of these things being sins. And if people say they can't help how they feel, what they're describing is they're describing the sin within their hearts. Those things that are against the will of the Lord. Any comments or questions at this point? They're all happy enough. Yeah, Dan, go ahead.
Thank you. So, yeah, Dan's comments there, just for those again who are going to listen to this in the future, his comments really is that we, we, we have an obligation and uh, a responsibility to speak up against these things, doing so in love, wisely, carefully, you know, seeking the opportunity that God would give us to do so in a manner that pleases the Lord and advances the gospel. But I think another thing you said, Dan, is, is very, very true. There are all manner of sins around us. And we, we are silent against so many sins that happen around us. And if we're going to, again, point out sin in society, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, we, we've got to do so, again, in a manner that is consistent across the board. And we recognize even the sin within our own hearts. We confess our own sin. And one of the ways in which you can, again, have a conversation in this regard is, is being very open regarding your own heart sins. And your own difficulties in keeping the law off the Lord, and your only hope is in the gospel. You know, I, had a, I had an encounter with my, my first church. There was a man in the neighborhood who dressed as a woman. And I, whenever it came to doing doors in the neighborhood, I would always deliberately go to his house. And after several occasions meeting him at his home and talking to him at the doorstep, he eventually opened up to the fact that he did not believe the church was a place where he could be welcomed. And so I, of course, shared the gospel with him. The gospel is for the whosoever. And if they repent of their sins and confess Christ, and the church door is open for them. And I said, that's why I deliberately come to your house every year. So you understand the gospel is for you. It's for you that you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so that's where we find ourselves in. But again, sadly, some of those convictions are being diluted again in the wider church. So we find ourselves... Speaking yes, of course, it's easy. We're speaking against the craziness of the, the liberal agenda and all that it says regarding LGBT stuff. But there are those, again, within the church, even within churches that are not so liberal, who are putting a place for the acceptance of the gray, the gay Christian mindset. And that's one of the difficult areas we have is the increasing the popularity of that idea. Uh, people are being promoted, again, in, in books, in conferences and other things where they're saying, well, you should listen to this, that a Christian can have same-sex attraction, be converted, still have same-sex attraction, but they should be viewed upon as being a gay Christian. They can't help how they feel. Now, again, remember, might, might remember some years ago, uh, I chaired a commission of a presbytery on this very issue. And we had some debates, and I had the, the task of reading several books and articles on this subject. And I, I could not believe that there were those who were genuinely arguing to have faith in Christ, to worship Christ, but who were saying at the same time it was completely legitimate to have same-sex attraction. Now, some would say that they would have this, but they chose celibacy. So they believed the will of God regarding marriage, and therefore their choice was celibacy. But if we are going to permit same-sex attraction as part of a Christian's identity, we are thereby opening the door to the legitimacy of those feelings. And so why is at this point, and this is true, so those who are, again, in, well, even in the PCA, they are arguing for same-sex attraction. They are not arguing for same-sex marriage. But my concern is they are given legitimacy to the Christian thought in this area. They're saying, well, a Christian can have these feelings, but that can be their Christian identity. And it may well, it may well be an attempt to accommodate the LGBT thought. 
Now, the strange thing is, the idea of celibacy for those of same-sex attraction is incredibly unpopular in the LGBT community. Because they say, well, how dare the church demand celibacy? If this is who they are and they're Christians and they feel this way, they should not be forced into celibacy. And so these people who are promoting same-sex attraction, well, they are rightly unpopular in true churches and they are rightly unpopular, or they're wrongly unpopular also in the LGBT community. But let me give you, I'm just going to give you some of the wording. This is, this is from the, uh, the document that we produced in that commission uh, that was printed in our current magazine some a few years ago now. And this is some of the language that I think is worth reminding you of again. The issue of sexual orientation and identity is of particular relevance for the church, which is under growing pressure to recognize homosexuality and gender reversal as legitimate expressions of human sexuality. Now, I haven't even gone down the lines of gender reversal for now, but this document, we dealt with both uh, homosexuality and transgenderism. We say this, we cannot, this is a declaration of our presbytery, passed by our presbytery, and this is where our church stands on the issue. We cannot accept the notion that true believers will be content in identifying themselves as gay Christians. And uh, we, we have to put etc. in, because the terms that are used are changing continually, that we can barely keep up with what's being said, even within Christian circles. But this is the key point. As the homosexual act is sin, so the inclination toward it is sinful. And that takes us back to Matthew chapter 5. That's where I started it today. We all believe adultery is sin. But the Lord is saying that the inclination towards adultery is also sin. Internally within our heart, that inclination is a sinful inclination towards sin. And so that, that's the key aspect in this, in this discussion. And so we continue this regard. Through the work of the Spirit, the inclination of sinners is changed. By nature, they're inclined towards sin, but by regenerating grace, they're inclined towards righteousness. And so this issue, and that's why this is so tragic in some conservative churches that profess to be confessional, even reformed confessional churches, they're actually forgetting the very definition of regeneration, whereby an unbeliever, their heart is radically changed. They're no longer bent towards sin. They are bent, they're inclined towards righteousness. Even though, we did make this point, even though indwelling sin remains, the power of sin is broken in reborn souls. So we wouldn't deny the fact that someone from a homosexual background, could be converted by God's grace and still struggle with temptation in that regard. But they would not with gladness say, those temptations are good. And we accept this is part of my identity. Rather, they would say, that's part of my old identity. And I'm no longer the such where some of you. And so the power of sin is broken in reborn souls. You'll recognize the next line because I, I preach it so often here in the church here. Christ delivers from all sin. It's penalty, it's power, and eventually it's presence. Again, we love the name Jesus. He shall save his people not in their sins, but from their sins. Delivering us from sin in its every consequence. One day, finally, delivering us from death itself. Christ is our Redeemer. And since believers will finally be delivered from all sin and glory, 
We hold that they will not be content in affirming an identity from which they'll be delivered in the eternal state. There'll be no gay Christians in heaven. And therefore, no Christians should be content to call themselves such in this world. You know, we all understand our own sin nature. There are sins that are peculiar to each and every one of us. Do you know that? We don't all have the same struggles. There are areas in our lives that are particular temptations to us in different areas. But praise God, one day we'll be free from all of those. And I'm not going to name all of my sins in this pulpit right now, but I know that I am not a, and you put the blank in, Christian. I'm a Christian saved by God's grace, delivered from the power of sin, and I long for the day when I'll be delivered from His presence completely. And so as, as a church, I don't want this to be a situation where we're standing without giving hope to a fallen world. This actually is a biblical understanding of hope for a fallen world. We don't come to the world and say, just stay in your sin and be accepted as you are in your sin. We come and say, you can be rescued from your sin, delivered from your sin. Not only forgiven, but rescued from its power and its overwhelming influence in your life. And so I say again, the matters, LGBTQ+, plus whatever else they may put into this, none of these things are unpardonable sins. And so as we approach, somehow we've got to try to catch the ears of these folks. That they realize it is not that we want to stone them. We want to see them saved. That's where it gets very, very difficult. Because generally what they hear from our mouths is what they like to term homophobia. It's an awful term. But they think that we hate them. They seem to think that we want them destroyed, where in reality we want them rescued. So we've got to keep 1 Corinthians 6 in our minds at all times. Because you know, if you go down 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and 10, there are people in your families who are in that list who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so as you go to approach someone in the LGBT community, if I can use that term again, look upon them and think of someone in your family, the adulterer, the fornicator, the idolater, the covetous. See your family member in the person in front of you. That that would help you moderate how you speak to them in Christian love. They would realize through your tears that your desire is for their eternal good. And in so doing, we like Christ would eat and drink with public and sinners. That they would realize that Christ receiveth sinful men. So I hope by God's grace we can hold all of these things in a proper fashion. Hating this sin with every part of our being. Hating what it's doing to society but realizing that these people need the Savior and may bring Christ to their hearts. Our time has really gone about a minute. Any final comments? Or... All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before Thee again and we realize the weight of responsibility we have. O oh Lord, in bygone days, 
the church found itself raging against the drunkenness of the world, bringing Christ to the drunkard. And we find ourselves in our time, in our society, seeking to bring the gospel to those who are engaging in all manner of filthy sins. Help us, Lord, of Christ's compassion. Help us to be clear that our compassion must not be compromise. And we certainly pray against the churches that are seeking to compromise truth to some way gain acceptance with the world. Oh Lord, forgive such iniquity. Help us, O oh Lord, to be strong, to be resolute in our determination regarding your will, but also to be those who seek to bring Christ to those in need. Give us grace, we pray. Grant us wisdom. Help us today. May even the rest of our day be a day marked by the blessing of God. May our worship be encouraging. May it edify our souls. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.